0: you have a Bible, if you could open it again this time to Hebrews chapter 10. In the church Bible, that's page 1208, and in the larger print Bibles, 1871. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll read the first 18 verses. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sins. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is God's word. Wouldn't it be great if there was one pill you could take that would solve every medical problem? Or one car service you could have that would take care of all your engine troubles? How about one law that took care of every crime issue? Or one approach that would work with every parenting challenge? But unfortunately, there is no one cure-all for any of those areas. Now, there was a time when you could buy bottles of mystery medicine that claimed to cure every bodily ill. Maybe you can still get stuff like that. But we're wise to it nowadays. We know it doesn't work. Medical problems are so varied and they're so complex, we know that one bottle or one pill can't cure them all. And we know it's the same for crime and for parenting, and even for cars. And because you and I know that, we assume there couldn't be a cure-all for our greatest problems. There couldn't be just one thing that solved the deepest issues of the human condition. Our guilt before God, our flawed personalities, our fear of our enemies, and our uncertainty about the future. If there's no one secret to keeping my car on the road, how could there possibly be one solution to those much more complicated problems? Well, when you and I open the Bible, the Bible has the audacity to tell us, yes, there is in fact one cure-all for your deepest most perplexing problems. That cure-all, according to the Bible, is the event that we celebrate every Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews wants us to see the self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was the one perfect sacrifice. It achieved all that needed to be achieved, to deal with our past, to secure our future, and to give us peace today and the present. We've seen many times before as we've been going through this book, the book of Hebrews is a sermon on the Old Testament. And so before the writer speaks to us about Jesus, he begins chapter 10 by taking us back to the Old Testament again. And he does that to help us understand Jesus. Verses 1 to 4 talk about sacrifices that remind us of our need. The annual Day of Atonement was a major event in the life of Israel. It was a day of elaborate ceremonies at the tabernacle and then later on at the temple. The high priest prepared himself by bathing meticulously He dressed in ornate robes and then he offered multiple animal sacrifices. He burnt incense to God and he took sacrificial blood into God's presence in the tabernacle. And while all of that was going on, the people, well, they gathered outside the tabernacle because they couldn't go in. They gathered together for a day of fasting and confession of their sins. We have to ask, what did all of that achieve? Verse 3 tells us it was an annual reminder of sins. It didn't actually deal with anything. It simply reminded the people what needed to be dealt with. The Day of Atonement never let people forget their sin, but it couldn't truly do anything about their sin. The Day of Atonement rituals were commanded in God's law. But verse 1 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. The very fact that the Day of Atonement happened every single year, that was clear evidence it didn't actually solve the problem of sin. It didn't make anyone fit for God's presence. Otherwise, the rituals would have ended and the people could have entered into God's presence. One writer says, if I have to take my car back to the mechanic every week with the same problem, that's a fair indication he has not succeeded in fixing it. And every year that Israel repeated the Day of Atonement... That was a fair indication that ceremony had not succeeded in fixing their sin. Every year they came back and more sacrifices were needed. And they hadn't got a step closer to God than the year before. They were still barred from entering the tabernacle. Those people gathered with weighty problems... Big burdens of sin and guilt. And at the end of the day, they took those same burdens home with them again. And so verse 1 says, The law was only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. We might translate that, The law was only a shadow of the good things to come. This passage will go on to tell us, The good things that hadn't come in the Old Testament have now come. But before we get to that, there is a principle here that's timeless. What was true of the Old Testament sacrifices is true of every human effort to please God. If you or I set out to make atonement for ourselves, what we actually get is a constant reminder of how far we fall short. If we make the most sincere efforts to pay the penalty of our sin and make ourselves acceptable to God, what will happen is we will only sink deeper into despair. Because the harder we try, the more we become aware of our failure. The Tight Runner is a novel, it's also been turned into a film, and it tells the story of Amir, a boy who grew up in a privileged home in Afghanistan. As the novel begins, Amir is grown up and he's now living in America, and he's just received a phone call from an old family friend back in the Middle East, and that friend ends the phone call by saying to Amir, there is a way to be good again. And as the book unfolds from that unusual opening, Amir tells us the story of his life. He tells us about his sin and then his attempt to atone for his sin. He explains that as a boy, he betrayed his best friend, Hassan. And his betrayal changed Hassan's life in a terrible way. Changed his life in an irreparable way. Well, Hassan is now dead, but Amir in America learns that Hassan had a son. And so Amir travels back to Afghanistan to try and help that boy. But putting things right turns out to be desperately, desperately difficult. And in the very last page of the book, after all of his effort, Amir tells us It didn't make everything all right. It didn't make anything all right. Amir keeps on hoping that he can fix things. But he admits to us his hopes are as fragile as a leaf in the woods. He did all that he could possibly do to be good again. But the more he tried, the more he realized his inability. And whether it's trips around the world to try and atone for our sin, like Amir, or whether it's elaborate religious ceremonies at the tabernacle, like the Old Testament Israelites, our own sacrifices simply end up reminding us of our need. You and I need something greater than what we ourselves can offer. And the rest of our passage shows it to us. Verses 5 to 18, 5 to 10, sorry, describe the sacrifice that meets our need. You'll notice in your Bibles that verses 5 to 7 contain a part quotation and a part interpretation of some lines from Psalm 40. And these Old Testament words are attributed to Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, When Christ came into the world, he said, and then we have words from Psalm 40. So we have to ask, how can these be the words of Jesus if they're taken from the Old Testament, written before Jesus came? Well, Psalm 40 was written by David. David was God's Messiah in the Old Testament. The Greek translation of Messiah is Christ. And both of those words mean anointed one. David was God's Messiah or God's Christ because he was God's anointed king. The Psalms of David are the Psalms of the Messiah. And the New Testament understands they're ultimately the Psalms of the true Messiah. Jesus the Christ. And so, when Christ came into the world, he said, continuing in verse 5, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God." When David wrote those words, he was talking about his own desire to be faithfully submissive to God. But what David actually wrote is slightly different from what is printed here in Hebrews chapter 10. Psalm 40 actually says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. In other words, what you really desire, God, is not actually elaborate rituals. What you desire is a servant who listens to you and listens in such a way that he then obeys you. What you're looking for, God, is perfect obedience to your will. That's the meaning of my ears you have opened, to listen and to obey. Now here in Hebrews, a Psalm 40 is applied to Jesus, we read something a little bit different. Instead of my ears you have opened, the text says in verse 5, a body you have prepared for me. What's going on? Well, remember the point of Psalm 40. God was not seeking outward religious ceremonies. He was looking for a perfectly obedient servant. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to see, in the case of Jesus Christ, the perfect obedience mapped out for him involved taking on a human body. The Son of God, who has always existed with his Father, would come to this earth as a man. That was God's will. That was God's plan. And it was not a last-ditch chess move from God, made because everything else he tried had failed somehow. No, the Bible makes it clear this had always been God's will and plan. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were preparing for this day. When the Son of God would take a human body and offer himself as the true sacrifice. He became a human to die in the place of humans. Jesus' sacrifice is the sacrifice that meets our need. Because his death wasn't an accident. Jesus' human body was a body created for our salvation. One writer puts it like this. Jesus is saying to his father, You created me that in my body... And with my body, I should do your will. So Jesus, what we call Jesus' incarnation, was not just a sightseeing trip down to earth. It didn't happen just so God would know what it feels like to be human. Jesus' incarnation was necessary for our salvation. None of the Old Testament sacrifices could meet our need. None of our own sacrifices can ever meet our need. But Jesus' sacrifice was made to measure. It perfectly met our need. A human being without sin died in the place of sinners. A human being who submitted perfectly to God died in the place of us who were rebels against God. So in verse 8, it lumps all of the Old Testament sacrifices together and then says to God, you weren't pleased with them even though you commanded them in the law. That is not telling us God was confused. He commanded animal sacrifices and then he decided he didn't like them. No, verse 8 is telling us those animal sacrifices were signposts. They were given by God to point us to the sacrifice that did please God. The sacrifice that pleases God is the sacrifice of perfect obedience. And that was offered by Jesus Christ. That's why verse 7 says, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. The scroll is the Old Testament. So where does it talk about Jesus? Well, in this context, it has to mean all of the regulations for sacrifices and offerings in the Old Testament. All of those were actually about Jesus. Those animal bodies sacrificed on the altar, they were really about the body of Jesus sacrificed on the cross. That's when God's will was done. That's when our need was met. That is our God-given way to be good again. And so verse 10 says, By that will, that's God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's a whole lot packed into that statement. It tells us our salvation came about by God's will. Our salvation came through Christ's sacrifice of Himself on the cross. And our salvation sets us apart for God. That's the meaning of we have been made holy. It's telling us this sacrifice didn't just earn us forgiveness for our sins. So that we don't need to worry about guilt anymore. It does that, of course. And we've seen in previous weeks that forgiveness is a priceless thing to have. So is the clear conscience that goes with it. But freedom from a guilty past is not all Jesus won for us at the cross. He won a future for us too. By his sacrifice, he set us apart for God. And what that means is spelled out for us in the next verses. Verses 11 to 18 tell us Jesus' sacrifice is not only the sacrifice that meets our need. It's the sacrifice that changes our future. And to help us understand that, verse 11 gives us a picture of the past. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The duties of the Old Testament priest have been described as a treadmill of sacrifice. And you get that sense in the text day after day, again and again. And notice, the priest stands for all of this. Today, most of us sit down to do our work, But it wasn't so long ago that people stood to work and they sat down to rest. And that's the significance here of the word stands. The priest stands because his work is never completed. There's always another bull to be butchered and to be hoisted up onto the altar. The Old Testament priest found himself on a treadmill of sacrifice. And it never truly achieved anything. The treadmill of sacrifice could never take away sins. But look at the contrast in verse 12. But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Our high priest sat down because his work was completed. His sacrifice was for all time. It will never and it need never be repeated. Jesus' one sacrifice has met our need. The results of his sacrifice will last for all of eternity. His sacrifice was enough for your past, your present, and your future. Tom Wright puts it like this. When as Christians, we look for assurance that we have truly been forgiven, we don't look, or we shouldn't look, at anything we do, at anything the church does, at anything Christian ministers, clergy, or priests, or whoever do we look back to the event outside Jerusalem on that dark Friday afternoon and thank God for what was accomplished fully and finally on our behalf. One of our hymns tells us, The price is paid. Come, let us enter into all that Jesus died to make our own. For every sin, more than enough, he gave and bought our freedom from each guilty stain. That hymn talks about entering into what Jesus won for us. But what is that exactly? Enter into what? Well, it certainly includes a cleansed, clear conscience that's mentioned there. Knowing that our guilty stains are gone. We might remember them, but God never will. But there's more to what Jesus won for us. Look again at verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. We've already seen what it means for Jesus to sit down. It means his work is finished. But notice where he sat down. At the right hand of God. God the Father is sovereign. He rules over all. And his rule is mediated, in other words, it's carried out, through the one who sits at his right hand. The right hand in the Bible is the position of authority. So Jesus, our high priest, did not just sit down. He sat down on heaven's throne. He has done the work to save us from sin and he has won the victory over each and every enemy in hell or earth or sky. Our high priest sits as king of the universe. When verse 13 says Jesus waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, that does not mean he's sitting around hoping that someone else will do it for him. No, it means he has already achieved the defeat of his enemies. He waits because he has done all that needed to be done. At the cross, he decisively defeated his enemies. It's like one of those scenes you sometimes see in films where the enemy is still on his feet, but he's been mortally wounded. He's been run right through with a sword, and he's swaying in front of us in slow motion just before he finally topples over into the dust. Jesus waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because it's only a matter of time. His victory on the cross will play itself out. It will play itself out all the way to what's described for us in the Book of Revelation. The day when God's enemies are trampled in the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The day when the devil and his henchmen are thrown into the lake of burning sulphur where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That final outcome for God's enemies is not in doubt. It's not a perhaps. It was made certain at the cross. So when you watch the news and you see evil running wild across this world. And when you find yourself praying with the saints in heaven, how long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? When you pray that, you may in that moment have a question about the timing of God's ultimate justice. But there is no question whether there will be ultimate justice. It's only a matter of time. When it comes to evil and darkness, the clock is ticking. On the cross, Jesus defeated his enemies and now he sits on the throne because his work is done. And if we take what we've just said about the defeat of God's enemies and if we flip it around, we will understand the perfection of God's people. If God's enemies are mortally wounded even though they're still on their feet, God's people are eternally healed even though we might be struggling to rise to our feet. Verse 14 says, By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Take the first part of that first. By his sacrifice, Jesus has made his people perfect forever. If you belong to Jesus, then in the eyes of God, you have been made perfectly and eternally clean. There's no barrier to fellowship with God. He sees no stains on you. He looks on you as perfect. You are accepted as his child. You're loved as a son or daughter. There's nothing partial or provisional about your acceptance with God when you've come to Jesus. God is not waiting to see how you turn out. You are eternally healed by Christ's blood. God looks at you and he sees a saint. Now that word saint has often been misused. It's often been applied to Christians who seem to be especially worthy or particularly righteous. But that is not how the New Testament uses the word. According to the New Testament, every Christian is a saint. The same Greek word is behind the English word saint and holy. Every Christian is made holy through faith in Christ. That's how God sees us. There's nothing more to be done. And so we might ask, why then does verse 14 go on to say, we're being made holy? Well, it's similar to what we saw in verse 13. Remember, Christ waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. They're already defeated. It's only a matter of time until the completeness of that defeat will be seen. That's the same with your holiness. If you belong to Jesus, then you are holy. It's only a matter of time till that holiness is clearly and perfectly seen. Jesus sacrificed, earned perfect holiness for you. God has already declared you to be a saint, a holy man or woman. And as you struggle day by day to rise to your feet, Jesus has all the resources that are necessary to get you from where you are now to where you will be one day. Jesus has the resources you need and he will supply them to you. Until one day you arrive in God's presence, holy, both in nature and in practice. So as we read about Jesus sitting, we mustn't take that idea too far. We mustn't take it to mean that he's inactive today. We're simply being told about the finality of his work on the cross. That's why he's described as sitting. It does not mean he's now idly watching the world go by. Before this, Hebrews has already told us what Jesus is doing now. He lives, we've been told, to intercede for us. To make sure we receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus sits because his one sacrifice was enough. Not because he's quit on us. Every single day he is applying the benefits of his sacrifice to us. Another way to put it is to say every day he is mediating the blessings of the new covenant to us. Those blessings are mentioned here in the last few verses. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. This is God's new covenant promise from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. We've come across it before back in chapter 8. It's repeated here as a reminder to us. God promised to give his people new minds and new hearts. Minds that love God's commands and hearts that love to obey his commands. Under the new covenant, you and I begin to see that promise becoming real in our lives. God's will no longer seems like a foreign, strange thing to us. We begin maybe slowly, but we do begin to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. That's what it means for his law to be written on our hearts. Our will begins to be conformed to God's will. That experience of having God's law in our hearts is a blessing Jesus won for us by his sacrifice on the cross. And he also won for us the blessing of God's forgetfulness. Verse 17. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Chapter 10 began with Old Testament sacrifices that were a reminder of sins. Here we're told Christ's sacrifice causes sins to be forgotten. One writer says, Jesus' death caused an act of oblivion to be passed in heaven. The sins of God's new covenant people pass into oblivion. A writer called John Flavel tells us, No sin can stand before the efficacy of his blood. No tract of time can wear out the virtue of this eternal sacrifice. It is as fresh, vigorous, and potent now as the first hour it was offered. Jesus' sacrifice is the sacrifice that meets our need and changes our future. So think for a moment about the things that weigh you down. Think of them, and whatever they are, I don't want to belittle any of them. In fact, let's give each of those things their fullest weight when we think about them. Let's acknowledge many of us here have very significant burdens and cares. But having been honest about that, let's go on to ask ourselves, is there anything that can outweigh what Christ has done for me? Is there any problem or difficulty that could make us say, this is more significant than the problems Jesus has dealt with on the cross? Is it not true that our most significant problems have been solved at the cross? Is it not true that our very deepest needs have already been met at the cross? When you and I lean the whole weight of our lives on Jesus' one perfect sacrifice, we find that His sacrifice is able to bear the weight. however dark and difficult our circumstances get, we can be totally honest about the darkness and the difficulty. Yet as God's people, we can still say, all is well, and all will be well. Before we gather around this table, that reminds us of his sacrifice. We're going to join together in asking God to increase our confidence in Christ's blood. We're going to sing All Must Be Well.